0: flushcarecom slash weightloss. Wise, brave, and great, with a full, beautiful face, speaking little. She wore a tan satin gown with two L's of train, a large black velvet hat in the French style, a man's belt from which hung a bag of gold ducats and a curved sword. Among the soldiers, both horse and foot, she was much feared, for that armed lady was fierce and cruel. Bartolomeo Serratani, the story of Florence. and welcome to the other half. Episode 4.11, Caterina Sforza, Veni, Vidi, Da Vinci. Last time, we finished our two-episode series on Catherine of Siena, the saintly, crowd-preasing orator whose devotion to faith and charisma saw her become a leading light in Italian politics and a friend of Pope's. Catherine marks a high-water mark for the moral probity of the subjects of this series – as today we're going to delve into the decidedly more worldly confines of the Italian Renaissance. 15th and 16th century Italy is one of history's most studied periods, and has been beloved for centuries by storytellers for its colour, vice and intrigue. It has produced household names like Borgia, Medici and Machiavelli, not to mention some of the most famous and valuable art of all time. But of course, all this fame comes at a price. And this era has more historical baggage than almost any other. The very name Renaissance is really just 19th century propaganda. It suggests a sudden reversion to the glories of the past, a turning on the lights after centuries of darkness. And the medievalist in me has always bristled against this. The Middle Ages were not the dark, cultureless deserts of popular imaginings. And the Renaissance period has far, far more in common with the Middle Ages than the glory days of ancient Greece and Rome. Indeed, the term Renaissance is just poorly defined and vague, and has more fans than sense. Now, my lecture on why I hate the term Renaissance and why this period is thoroughly overrated would be a very long one, But luckily for you, it is almost entirely unrelated to this podcast, so I shall leave my embittered pro-medievalist ramblings for another time. This all said, there is no doubt that this was a period of change. Late 15th century Christendom emerged from a period of severe shocks that we've been talking about over the last few episodes. War, schism and plague had devastated Western Europe. And of course, there was also the great shock of the fall of Constantinople. The fall of the city in 1453 and the toppling of the last Byzantine emperor saw the end of the 1500 year old Roman Empire, though its influence had been waning for quite some time. And it saw Rome now standing alone as the sole capital of Christendom. But of course the city sat among a wash of warring cities and in a peninsula that was the playground for mercenaries and foreign armies. It is a messy time, and all three of the women that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks would lead lives marked by violence, intrigue, and betrayal. And if that doesn't wet your appetites, I don't know what will. One final thing before we begin. In the previous episode, you may notice that I used people's anglicised names. So it was Catherine of Siena, not Katharina of Siena. This is because this is what people generally called her – in the historical record, however, I will not be doing that in this episode, as for this period, it's far more common to use Italianized names. So it will be Caterina Sforza, not Catherine Sforza. I'm not wild about this inconsistency between two episodes, but at least we'll be consistent within these mini-series. So. I think that's enough build-up, except of course to remind you that if you want to support the show, you can do so by becoming a Patreon supporter. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast to sign up. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The Sforza family were new money. Indeed, they had been peasants until 1390, when the patriarch Muzio ran away from the farm to become a condottiero, a mercenary soldier. The name, Sforza, was earned on the battlefield. It means strength, and Muzio Sforza's career eventually brought him to the Duchy of Milan, northern Italy's most powerful state. His son, Francesco, married the daughter of the Duke of Milan and, in 1448, seized control of the city and took the title of Duke in a bloody coup. During his rule and that of his son, Galeazzo, Milan flourished, becoming a centre of art, culture and industry. Galeazzo Sforza was married, but like so many Italian noblemen of the time, he didn't exactly feel constrained by the bonds of monogamy. His most notable mistress was one Lucrezia Landriani, with whom he had been with since he was 16. And together they had four children, the second of whom was Caterina, born in 1463. Renaissance Italy was not actually a bad place to be an illegitimate child. In fact, they abounded. Bastards like Caterina were not hidden away. They were raised with natural-born heirs and treated in much the same way. She was brought up in the Castello Sforzesco, or Castle Sforza, and received the best education money could buy. She received all the same classes as her brothers and sisters under the tutelage of the humanist poet Francesco Fileffo. She was well-read in the classics, especially Virgil, Seneca and Cicero, and had access to a thousand-book library. One book that we know she enjoyed was a recent edition, Giovanni Boccaccio's Concerning Famous Women, which we encountered in the series on Joanna of Naples. Indeed, Caterina's great grandfather, Muzio, the founder of the Sforza dynasty, had been a personal bodyguard of Joanna, so a nice little link there. She also joined her brothers in the more athletic pursuits of riding and hunting, and was even trained in military strategy, a skill which, as we'll see, became very useful to her later in life. Even for the somewhat unorthodox Italians, this was quite unusual. The Sforzas had achieved their wealth and position by the sword, and so knew better than most that to keep it, they had to be prepared and trained to fight. Caterina also had some powerful female role models growing up, most notably her grandmother Bianca Maria who had ruled with Caterina's father, Galeazzo during his first years in power, and her stepmother, Bonna, who was the sister of the Queen of France, and was supposed to be married to the English king, Edward IV, before he eloped with Elizabeth Woodville. Both Bianca and Bonner impressed on the young Caterina that to survive in the febrile world of Italian power politics, you needed a beautiful face, nerves of steel, and a will of iron lessons Caterina took to heart. In 1471, the College of Cardinals elected a new pope, Sixtus IV, and Galeazzo was very pleased because he had bankrolled his candidature. With this victory came the spoils of influence and profit, and for Caterina, a husband. Popes didn't have children, at least in theory, but they were as keen as temporal rulers to create dynasties. Therefore, papal nieces and nephews were the equivalents of the scions of kings and dukes, and so they quickly shot up to the top of the marriage market whenever a new man came to the throne of St. Peter. Sixtus had come from humble beginnings like the Sforzas. His father had been a common seaman, but in time he would make his family, the Della Rovere, one of the most influential and powerful in all of Italy. He did this by being one of the great nepotistic popes. And so, when he ascended to the papacy, the hottest young bachelor on the market became his nephew, Girolamo Riario. The 30 year old Riario was a shoemaker with minimal education and had only risen to noble rank after his uncle's papal coronation. He was also overweight, pale, and sickly, despite what his official portrait by Melozzo da Forli would have you believe. But beauty is in the eye of the fortune hunter and the prospect of a marital union between the papal family and the Duchy of Milan could present a boon for both parties. Both were upset families surrounded by potential enemies. The Pope could give the Sforzas the kind of legitimacy only papal favour could convey, while Sixtus would gain the backing of one of northern Italy's most powerful states. Initially, the plan was to marry Girolamo to Caterina's 11 year old cousin, Costanza. But her mother, Gabriella, balked at Riario's demand to consummate the marriage immediately. Quite understandably, Gabriella wanted to wait until her daughter reached the legal age of 14. And despite immense pressure put on her, Gabriella held her ground. She would not let her eleven year old daughter be violated by a thirty year old man of inferior rank, even if he was going to be her husband. Girolamo was furious at this perceived sight, and so Galeazzo was forced to offer up his ten year old daughter instead. After the dowry was agreed, and a hefty one at that, Caterina, still a young girl, even by the standards of the time, was presented to the man who had become her husband. Although this kind of thing was always in her future, it all happened so much sooner than expected. She would have been prepared to be marrying at 14 or 15, not 10. Indeed, this was not at all legal, let alone moral, but her father and new husband went ahead and did it anyway. She didn't have a choice in the matter. The marriage was consummated on the wedding night and I don't really want to say any more about that, except... gross. The whole thing had to be retroactively approved by the Pope in a papal bull. In the final part of the deal, Caterina's father sold the city of Imola to Girolamo for a pretty penny. The deal done, Girolamo went back to Rome, leaving Caterina to complete her education until she came of age. Girolamo hardly pined for his child bride... They did not exchange a single letter over the next three years, and while Caterina continued her studies, Girolamo enjoyed the company of a litany of mistresses and notched up an impressive list of enemies. He was no match for his father-in-law, though, in this regard, as over the next 12 months, Galeazzo's rule became increasingly despotic. Overspending on vanity projects and gifts for his new mistresses emptied the city's coffers, swelling the ranks of republican sympathisers who yearned for the city to be free of the Sforzas. On Boxing Day, 1476, Galeazzo was in the Church of St Stephen when three assassins set upon him. After being stabbed 14 times, he fell to the floor, dead. His killers were in the mould of Brutus and Cassius. They thought they would be celebrated as heroes, but instead they were hunted down and brutally executed. If the painful circumstances of her wedding night had not been the moment that Caterina's childhood ended, then the murder of her family certainly marks that shift. Her stepmother, Bonner, acted quickly, stepping in as regent for her seven year old son, Jan, who inherited the title. She secured all of the duchy's alliances, reassuring them that it was business as usual. And, as part of that, she sent Caterina off to Rome to join her husband. The last thing either of them wanted was for Girolamo to repudiate Caterina now that her powerful father was dead. So, in the spring of 1477, 14-year-old Caterina Sforza left her family and travelled south to Rome to join a husband she barely knew and begin her new life in the Eternal City. Her journey south was an extravagant parade. Around 40 servants and retainers accompanied Caterina and their ranks were then bolstered by around a hundred of Girolamo's people, as well as musicians and local nobility. At each town, she would be announced, Welcome, the Countess of Imola, sister of the Duke of Milan, and husband to the Pope's favourite nephew. Her stepmother, Bonner, had stage-managed the whole trip, and ensuring and Caterina was greeted with as much pomp and circumstance as the family could muster. On the way to Rome, she stopped off at Imola to be formally welcomed into her new city. Her husband had never bothered to visit, and so the citizenry flocked to finally catch a glimpse of one of their rulers. Caterina was born for these kinds of occasions. She may have only been 14, but all of her upbringing had been leading up to this. As the town came into view, she stopped to bathe and change. She would not enter as a weary, dusty traveller. Instead, she dressed in gold brocade, embroidered with hundreds of pearls. Her long fair hair fell over a black silk cape, and her ears and fingers were adorned with precious jewels. This was the politics of appearance, and she had been training her whole life for it. Imola was only a modest provincial city, but it put on a fine show for its new countess. Days of festivities, feasts, and fealty encompassed Katerina's time in Imola, as she delighted in what was, in effect, a coming-out party. She dispensed favours, pressed the flesh, and impressed all with her charm. But while she was having the time of her life, it had not escaped her notice that her husband was nowhere to be seen. He had planned to join her in Imola. But his enemies in Rome had something different planned for him. A plot to assassinate him had recently been uncovered, and Sixtus ordered his nephew to avoid travel for the time being and keep his head down. Caterina was instructed to wait in Imola, but she was impatient to get going, and so took matters into her own hands. Against everyone's advice, she got back on the road and entered Rome in late May. Just outside the city, she was greeted by her husband, who looked a very different man from the one she had hastily married four years before. He had put on more weight his health was failing, and fear of assassination had caused sleepless nights. But Caterina seems to have taken this all in her stride, and after being presented to his escort of soldiers, they entered the city over the Milvian Bridge, where they were greeted by members of the papal court, including cardinals and ambassadors. After spending the night at the cardinal's palace, she processed through the city to St Peter's Basilica, escorted by 6,000 horsemen dressed in another lavish outfit designed to demonstrate the wealth of the combined Sforza and Riario families. According to one observer, quote, that which was most remarkable in the diversity and multiplicity of spectacles was the rare and incomparable beauty of Caterina and her almost miraculous grace. There, after hearing mass, Pope Sixtus remarried them, ensuring that no questions could be had about the legality of their union, despite its, let's say, unorthodox beginnings. He then presented her with another elegant pearl necklace, this time from his own treasury, thereby marking her with his personal favour. She was then introduced to all the cardinals, whom she greeted dutifully as instructed, before finally setting off with her husband to her new home, the Orsini Palace in the Campo dei Fiori. The Milanese ambassador describes this vast palace as, quote, an earthly paradise. And even for the daughter of the Duke of Milan, this was a step up in splendour. The first thing she would have seen was a table piled high with gifts worth more than 12,000 ducats, even more than her dowry. And then she would have seen room after ornately decorated room, each looking over a large central courtyard. The wedding day banquet was more spectacle than meal. Each course was introduced by a child on a chariot reciting heroic Greek myths, and included sugar-coated fruits, a fish encrusted with gold and silver, and two whole roasted calves. The piece de resistance was the dessert, a collection of edible life-sized sugarwork statues. This was gluttony and display on a whole new level for Caterina. The only thing that could match the decadence of the dinner was the eminence of the guest list, which included the Pope himself. To quote her biographer, Elizabeth Lev, quote, sacred and profane intertwined. Katerina dazzled her audience, but this was only the beginning. She had entered Roman high society, but now she had to stay there. Rome was a very different city from where she had been raised. Milan was a bustling city of commerce and industry. Rome was a tourist trap which created nothing and leached off the papal court and the legion of pilgrims that flocked there every day. Think of it as a combination of Versailles and Disneyland, but with all the security of 1980s New York. Wealthy Romans like Catarina couldn't wander around as they pleased. They were accompanied by small armies of heavily armed bodyguards, who shoved bystanders aside to make way for their charges. Rome was never a city that was entirely under control, and fear of the mob impacted every decision made by the papacy and notable families. Caterina's wedding banquet that I described at the end of the first part was but a taster of the quotidian feasts, parties and receptions that made up her days. This was not mere frivolity. These events were the stages on which she was expected to shine, and shine she did. Her beauty, fair hair and sense of style wowed Roman society, while her stepmother, Bonna, ensured that she was well-stocked for jewels and accessories. She may have only been 14, but she was considered one of Rome's most beautiful and gracious women, and her reputation only grew as she settled into the role. Her husband, on the other hand, was too busy scheming to pay much attention to his young wife. A year after she arrived in Rome, he got involved in the Pazzi conspiracy to murder Lorenzo and Giuliano de' Medici. The Medicis, based in Florence, were the wealthiest family in Italy and were the papacy's principal backers. When Girolamo had bought Imola as part of his betrothal to Caterina, the idea had been that it would be the capital of a new state under his control. But the Medicis opposed this plan. Their main rivals, the Pazzi's, got in Girolamo's ear and they hatched a plan. Decapitate the Medici by killing their two most prominent members and the Pazzi could take over Florence, leaving the way open for Girolamo's new state in Romagna. This half-baked scheme was approved by Pope Sixtus, though he would later maintain that he only wished for regime change, not murder. And the conspirators recruited two anti-Medici priests as the assassins. On the 26th of April, 1478, the Medici brothers were celebrating Mass in the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore when, at the holiest moment of the ceremony, they were attacked. Giuliano was knocked down and stabbed 19 times, dying at the scene. Lorenzo, though, managed to escape, showing why you shouldn't send priests to do a soldier's job. This was the scandal of the age. The plot was as hapless as it was sacrilegious, and was a permanent stain on Juralama's name. Katerina was not implicated in the plot, she likely knew nothing about it, but it did teach her some important lessons on statecraft. After all, learning what not to do is half the battle. Of course, one of the key duties of any new bride was producing heirs, and Katerina set about this duty straight away. Just as Girolamo was plotting murder, she gave birth to a daughter, Bianca, and the following year a son, Octavian, named somewhat grandiosely for the first Roman emperor and heir of Julius Caesar. The man chosen to be the godfather of young Octavian was an up-coming Spanish cardinal, Rodrigo Borgia, a man whose excesses and wealth would make him and his family's name infamous. But more on him later. The next year, she gave birth to another son, Cesare, or Caesar, again sticking with the ancient Roman strongman theme. And this also coincided with her husband adding the town of Forli to his collection of holdings in the Romagna. The couple visited their new city in 1481, accompanied by their children. All were dressed to impress, their journey slowed by the enormous baggage train that carried Caterina's vast wardrobe and jewellery collection – as well as a huge amount of plate and silver. When they arrived at the city, they were greeted by cheering crowds clamouring for a glimpse of one of Italy's great power couples before holding a reception at the town hall, where they received gifts from notable citizens. There, Girolamo made a speech where he lifted all city tolls and taxes, promising never to reinstate them. This was wildly popular, but would come to bite him later. However, this was Girolamo's only real contribution to the month-long visit to Forli. Caterina spent her time socialising and meeting people, and she made friends and valuable contacts, both in Forli and later when they went on to Imola. Girolamo, by contrast, lived in constant fear of assassination, probably because he spent most of his time trying to bump off his enemies. Indeed, while cooped up in his quarters... He happened upon a new scheme to expand his little empire. In between his two cities of Forli and Imola was the small town of Faenza, which the Deste family held. The Destes controlled the Duchy of Ferrara and were one of northern Italy's most powerful families, with links to the Kingdom of Naples. Even with the support of his uncle, Pope Sixtus, Giuliano couldn't take the Destes on single handedly and so travelled to Venice to get their support. Venice had their own beef with Ferrara. Venice controlled lucrative salt mines, a hugely valuable commodity at the time, and Ferrara wanted to muscle in on that territory. This led to the outbreak of the Salt War in 1482, with Venice and Girolamo's papal army facing Ferrara and the Kingdom of Naples. The Neapolitans sent an army to attack Rome, and Girolamo was tasked with defending the Eternal City. However, instead of meeting the Neapolitans in battle, Girolamo cowered behind the city walls, reportedly drinking and gambling on the high altar of St Peter's, scandalising the Roman people. When troops did arrive to take on the Neapolitans, it was not Girolamo, but the Venetians that engaged them at Campo Morto, winning a decisive victory. Once again, this short conflict exposed Girolamo as both a bungler and a coward, and lowered his standing even further. Caterina had been raised to face her enemies down, to stand and fight. To be married to a man who feared to take the field of battle was an acute embarrassment. Despite this, Girolamo was still the most powerful man in Rome, and used his influence to extort as much money as he could. Along with his nephew, Cardinal Riario, they took control of every aspect of the city's government. Demanding ever increasing payments from papal employees and selling church offices for a song. His thugs patrolled the streets, burning down the homes of his enemies and making life a general misery for everyone. He also involved himself in the long running feud between Rome's two great warring factions, the Orsini and the Colonna. He seized a great deal of Colonna land, had Cardinal Colonna lynched, and then had the family patriarch arrested tortured, and then executed. When his cousin, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, interceded with the Pope to bring a halt to the bloodshed, Girolamo yelled in front of the whole papal court, quote, I will burn you in your own house. So now add the della Rovere's to his list of enemies. Girolamo was completely out of control, and there was nothing Pope Sixtus or Caterina could do to stop his reign of terror in Rome and its hinterland. But, on the 12th of August, 1484, everything was turned on its head, when Pope Sixtus suddenly died. His death seemed to lift a spell veiling the people of Rome from what they had been suffering, and they responded by immediately rioting. Mobs, egged on by Girolamo's enemies, torched his and Caterina's home in the city. Caterina, seven months pregnant with her fourth child at the time, was with her husband and the Orsini's outside of the city. Without his uncle around, the future looked bleak for Girolamo, as the College of Cardinals fell under the sway of the Colonnas, He dared not enter the city, but his wife held no such fear. She rode bold as brass into the city, took control of the Castel Sant'Angelo, the city fortress, and turned its guns on the Vatican. Overnight, the tables turned. Now Caterina held the upper hand and the Cardinals had to come to terms with her. The fashionable queen of high society had cast off her gown for a suit of armour, and all that training and military strategy from her childhood was paying dividends. The Cardinals sent her husband's nephew, Cardinal Riario, to negotiate on their behalf, but she refused him entry as a family member. She would only treat with him in his role as an ambassador for the Cardinals. When he stormed off in a huff, she is reported to have said, quote, This man would match his wits with mine. Does he not know I have the brain of Duke Galliazzo and am as headstrong as he? This persuaded the cardinals that they were not going to be able to intimidate Caterina, but they could always trust to her husband's greed. They offered him eight thousand ducats, his old job of captain general, and confirmation of his lordship of Imola in return for his wife giving up the castle and them leaving the city. He accepted this, infuriating Caterina, who rightfully recognised that this was a bad deal. She said she didn't care what her husband agreed. She would only deal with the next pope, not the cardinals. Girolamo, feeling the pressure from the cardinals, who threatened to revoke their agreement if he couldn't control his woman, made plans to leave Rome without her. This Final humiliation forced Katerina to come to terms. But when she left the fortress, she did so dressed in a man's belt with a sword hanging from it, as we saw in the quote at the beginning of the episode. She was surrounded by soldiers and rode out of the city, appearing to all as a general honourably retreating from a battlefield rather than as just a nobleman's wife. But this pomp and circumstance couldn't mask the fact that this was, in effect, an exile for Girolamo and Caterina. The return to Foley in 1484 was described by the chronicler Andrea Bernardi as being, quote, "...very bitter for him, his wife, and his children. Those days were filled with great sadness." Under the papacy of his uncle, Girolamo had enjoyed great power, prominence, but also, most importantly, funding from the papal treasury. The new Pope, Innocent VIII's primary backer, was Giuliano della Rovere, whom you may remember Girolamo had threatened to have lynched. So, it's fair to say he wasn't well disposed, the lord of Imola and Forli, Girolamo was cut off from his life support. He would have to survive on his own. And that wouldn't be easy, because one, he had made enemies of most of his neighbours, and two, He had become so dependent on his uncle's largesse that he was desperately short of funds now that the taps were closed. Remember when he lifted Fawley's taxes and promised never to reinstate them? Well, yeah, that was now coming to bite him. Turns out taxes are really quite important to pay for things like defence, public amenities and salaries. And he didn't have enough money coming in to make up the shortfall. That summer, the prolonged drought also wrecked the year's crop yield, forcing him to buy grain from abroad at exorbitant prices, draining the last of his money. Niccolò Machiavelli perhaps had Girolamo's predicament in mind when he wrote the following in The Prince, his treatise on rulership, written a few days later. Quote, it would be nice to have the reputation of being generous. If one shows generosity honestly, as it should be shown, It may not become known, and you will not avoid the criticism of his opposite, meanness. Therefore, anyone wishing to maintain the reputation of being generous has to keep on being more and more generous. As a result, a prince thus inclined will consume all his property in such acts. In the end, he will have to unnecessarily exploit his people, and tax them, and do everything he can to get money. This will soon make him disliked by his subjects, and becoming poor, he'll be little valued by anyone. Katerina, whose leadership style was built around the politics of appearance, saw her own budget slashed for new dresses and accessories, a situation not aided by being stuck in the provinces. She had to make cuts to her household, and the fabulous entertainments and banquets over which she had once ruled Roost were now a thing of the past. Like her husband, she also no longer had the power of patronage that she once had. Before, she could put in a word for friends and allies and secure plum jobs and appointments for her favourites. Now, she had no real influence at all. That said, she knew how to protect her image and maintain her popularity. For example, during an outbreak of plague in April 1485, she tended to the sick and brought food and medicine to some of the poorest parts of the city areas that most wealthy citizens did not dare to go near. In December of 1485, with the city coffers empty and Girolamo flat broke, he was forced to reinstate taxation in Forli, causing uproar. This civil strife was matched by a breakdown in relations between husband and wife. Heavily pregnant while in the command of the Castel Sant'Angelo, she had given birth to a third son, Giovanni, soon after arriving in Forli and a year later bore a fourth, Galeazzo, named after her father. But these new bundles of joy couldn't mask the marital strain, as fights about money and Girolamo's failing rulership began to spill out into public. We have very few eyes on the private life of Girolamo and Caterina, but the fact that court insiders were beginning to hear their dirty laundry being aired in public is an indication of how bad things were getting. To give one example of this, in November 1486, she was invited to the wedding of her sister Bianca to the son of the Holy Roman Emperor back home in Milan. This was the social event of the year, with everyone who was anyone RSVPing yes. Girolamo intercepted this invitation and wrote back to his relatives that while well, he would be more than happy to let Caterina go, she had refused, saying she had literally nothing to wear. He told the Milanese ambassador, tears apparently rolling down his cheeks, quote, "Clothed or unclothed, bejeweled or not, I would be happy to let her go just to please her. But she says that she will not go without her jewels." This was a bald-faced lie, and the ambassador knew it. Caterina was extremely close to her family in Milan, and mere vanity would not have prevented her from attending her sister's wedding. The ambassador therefore went to Katerina himself to ask her, and she could not hold it in any more. You don't know how awful things are between my husband and me. The way he treats me is so bad that I envy those who have died by him. She described herself as quote, derelict, neglected, and abandoned. This was a somewhat uncharacteristic bit of melodrama, and it was undoubtedly embellished by the ambassador in his report but it does demonstrate the power dynamic in their relationship. Jealous and controlling, Giolamo clearly feared his wife's abilities and sought to keep her from cultivating alliances and from speaking to her very powerful family. Her actions here, though, clearly embarrassed her husband into a climb-down, as she would return home for the first time in ten years in March 1487. Milan was the place to be at this time, a thriving hub of scientific discovery engineering projects, and, of course, artistic patronage. During her visit, she would have met the Florentine artist Leonardo da Vinci, who had recently completed his seminal Virgin of the Rocks altarpiece, which today sits in the Louvre. As a side note, one art historian has claimed that Caterina was the subject of the Mona Lisa, but this seems highly unlikely. She was not in a financial position to commission such a work, and, more to the point, she looks nothing like the Mona Lisa. However, she had not been in Milan for long before she was called back. Her husband was gravely ill. She feared the worst. His misrule and creation of enemies meant that his death could bring about the ruin of everything. With expansionist neighbours looking enviously at Imola and Forli, the succession of her eight-year-old son could spark instability and opportunity for the likes of the Della Rovares and the Medici. Fortunately, Girolamo survived, but only just, and he would have a lengthy convalescence. Katerina, though, had spent enough time in the shadows, forced to acquiesce and go along with her husband's incompetence and petulance. For her future, and that of her children, she would have to take charge and save the family from ruin herself.